You're listening to PetLifeRadio.com. Working Like Dogs is brought to you by Dog.com. For everything and anything dog, shop Dog.com today for all the top brands. Greenies, Frontline, Kong, Nylabone, Royal Canin, and more. Shop at Dog.com and use the promo code SADWORK, S-A-D-W-O-R-K, and get $15 off your order of $75 or more. Hello and welcome to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Thank you for joining us today. We're your hosts. My name is Marcy Davis and my co-host is my trusty service dog, Whistle. And Whistle and I are thrilled to be with you today to talk about our favorite subject, working dogs and working animals. And today our guest is Karen Fortier and Karen is the author of Sled Dogs of Denali National Park. And she served as the official kennel manager at Denali National Park and as a park ranger for 10 years. And she's going to talk with us about her experiences and share with us what she's doing now. But we really want to talk with her about the sled dogs and, and learn more about the park. So come right back after these quick messages from our sponsors as we welcome Karen to the show. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. At Petco, we really love pets. There isn't anything we won't do to make sure they're getting the best products and the best care. So when you ask us a question like, So how do you feel about cat condos? We can say from experience, Feels like home. For her. Enter the code WORK10, W-O-R-K, the number 10, and get 10% off any order. No minimum at Petco.com. FTD's network of over 40,000 florists around the world have been creating beautiful handcrafted arrangements for 100 years. Each arrangement is delivered the same day and backed by FTD's seven-day satisfaction guarantee. For a century, people have trusted their most important occasions to the flower experts at FTD. Since Pet Life Radio is all about puppy dogs and flowers, our listeners, that's you, can get a 20% discount on your order. Just go to florop.com and use the code WORK1234 at checkout. F-L-E-U-R-O-P.com, code word W-O-R-K-1234. You like your business to reach out and invite in our audience. We have a brand new trademark concept called Info Seeds. Info Seeds are short 20 second seeds of information about your place of business, practice, or service. We only have a limited number of slots left. For more information, visit PetLifeRadio.com. Click on sponsorship information. There you can listen to a sample of Info Seed or email us at PetLifeRadio.com. Remember, only a limited number of opportunities are available. Got questions about your hound's health? Need the facts on Fido's fitness or food? You want to unleash your pup's potential? Well, you've come to the right place with Win with Dogs. Here, we learn how easy it is to naturally improve the lives of our furry friends. So sit 
stay, and get ready to win with dogs. With me, Raquel Wynn. Exercise, nutrition, interaction, and love make for one healthy, happy hound. Give yourself the gift of knowledge on demand every week right here at Pet Life Radio with me, Raquel Wynn, and win with dogs. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. Today our guest is Karen Fortier. Hello, Karen, and welcome to Working Like Dogs. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so excited that you could be with us today because, I mean, Denali National Park, wow. Just saying it is such, it's, it just has so much in its name, and I just can't wait for you to tell us more about it. Tell us about the history of the park. Well, uh, the park really has a, it's a very old park, especially in Alaskan standards. Uh, the park was established in 1917, and um it was established really to protect a lot of the wild game species, especially the doll sheep that were living in that area. And um, there was concern that uh, a lot of the poaching that was happening in the area was wiping out the wildlife populations there. Um, so the park was established, and kind of where I fit into all this is that um, the, the original way to patrol the park was by sled dog team. And the, the very first superintendent brought sled dogs into the park and established the kennel in 1921. And those first rangers patrolled throughout the park and still do that today. Well, that sounds wonderful. I mean, sled dogs are a different type of working dog that, that a lot of people don't think about. How did you start working with the dogs? Well, um, when I first moved to Alaska, after I finished college, I um, began getting interested in sled dogs. It was kind of the way of life in Alaska. And uh, my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, um, we started uh, kind of apprenticing with some friends that we met who had sled dogs. Soon, you know, it only took a few years before we were completely hooked and became our way of life to kind of camp and travel by dog team in the winter. So we acquired our own team. And we did that for about 10 years. We, would, we were working in the park uh, for a six-month season and in the summer. And then in the winters, we would travel with our dog team. And then when the kennel manager position opened up, I was one of the lucky ones to be chosen. Yeah, it sounds like a dream job, definitely. It really is. It's, um, it's probably the most unique position within the National Park Service, for sure. And, and it's, I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have had that position for 10 years. Yeah, and what? So tell us more about that job. What did you have to do every day? Well, it's a very big contrast um, from what you do in the summer and the winter. And in the summer, it really focuses on showing the dogs to all the visitors to the park. And it's the number one interpretive program at Denali. So we had, you know, anywhere from say 100 to six or 700 people on a given day visiting the kennels and we would give um, three daily sled dog demonstrations where uh, visitors come and learn about the history of our dogs and how we use them today and then we would also hook five or six dogs up to a wheeled sled and run them around the track so that people could see how they work and how excited they get to work and you know how they want nothing more than to put a harness on and to run 
and then you know uh, as well as all of that interpretive stuff in the summer it's you know caring for the dogs raising puppies we breed it we would breed one dog each spring and have puppies and then um you know all the training and care that it takes for all the the equipment and tack as well um and then in the winter it shifts to, in the fall really it shifts to fall training and getting the dogs back into shape and starting breaking trail and putting in trail to different places in the back country of the park um we would mostly focus on the two million acres of wilderness designated area in Denali. And of course, you know, you're not patrolling all of that land, but we have a series of backcountry cabins that we would travel to and we would stock supplies in, in the fall. And so the kind of the purpose of those trips were to haul in supplies, haul in firewood, um, be the transportation for researchers into Denali because since it is a wilderness, we would try to minimize, you know, the use of helicopters and there is no use of snow machines. So really the dogs are the only on-the-ground transportation method. And we do other things like watching out for any illegal activities, although, you know, there are other means today that probably are faster than than um, dog team, but... Uh, but certainly we're kind of the eyes and ears of the park during the winter months. Yeah, well, that sounds like a great job description for you and the dogs. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering about that, about the specific tasks that the dogs perform. And so it does seem like the transportation is such a large piece of that. And, mm-hmm. and transportation is really the heart of a society, right? Of how we sure, get yeah. around and, yeah, and function. Yeah, so, it, it was said that really... You know, the whole settlement of Alaska because of dogs is, you know, it's been attributed to them where where people have settled and, and the whole mode of transportation, you know, in, in the entire state of Alaska and in other northern places for sure has been, you know, tied to the whole history of the dog. Yeah. Well, tell us more about the dogs. So you said that they have a litter usually every year? Yeah, Are- these are what we call Alaskan Huskies. Um, so some some folks aren't always familiar with that particular breed because it's not, you know, a registered AKC breed at all. It's really a, you know, an amalgamation of many different types of dogs that has come together, you know, and produced this incredible working dog. So, you know, over the years, you know, maybe they were some Siberian Huskies and Malamutes and all kinds of things, um, and then... Boy, in the gold rush days, any kind of dog that would pull a sled was kind of bred into the mix. And so over time, it has, you know, we've produced this dog that we now call the Alaskan Husky. Ah, that's interesting. And so did, are those the dogs that have the blue eyes? They can have blue eyes, but they can have brown eyes. And you sometimes end up with one, of, you know, one of each. Um, but it's not a, a breed standard at all. There's no breed standard for the Alaskan Husky. And in fact, there is a huge variation in their appearance, in their size and their appearance. And, and Denali sled dogs were what we call freight style of sled dogs, the freight mm-hmm. style of Alaskan Husky. So they were much larger than, say, the racing Alaskan Husky that, you know, folks use in the Iditarod and other races. Right. Yeah, I was wondering about that, about how they compare to the dogs that participate in the Iditarod. Right. They're... They're, they can be twice as large. Um, sometimes the, uh, you know, Iditarod dogs run 40 to 50 pounds, and our dogs, you know, can sometimes be up to 85 pounds. So they're they're pretty pretty large animals. They're longer legged than a lot of the racing dogs, um, and they uh, tend to be a lot thicker uh, fur than some of the racing dogs today as well. So they're they're built more for not speed so much as getting through rougher conditions, breaking trail through deeper snow, and also, um, 
you know, hauling heavier loads. Mm-hmm. And tell us, what do you mean by breaking trail? That means, like, racing dogs are often running on, a, on a, an established trail, like, say, a snow machine or some kind of groomer has run over it. In fact, even all the races, there'll be trail breakers out ahead of those dogs. So mostly you're running, you're trying to run from point A to point B as fast as you can. In Denali, since, you know, we're not using snow machines or anything else, the dogs are setting their own trail. So you're just guiding them by voice commands to where you want them to go. So, you know, at times that can mean you're out in front on snowshoes, breaking the trail for them, setting a trail, packing down a trail for them. Other times, if it's not too deep for them, they can actually, you know, make their way through the snow and, you know, put a trail in. Ooh, that must be exhilarating. I mean, just the thought of being out in the snow and the crisp air with those amazing animals. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, and it's... uh, it it was always just incredible to make it, you know, to your destination on a particular day because you never knew what you were really going to find out there. Yeah, and there aren't many experiences like that left, I can imagine, being out in the true wilderness and really working with your dog for survival, really. It's very true. I mean, and, and it, it's, it definitely is a, a codependent relationship there because they are definitely depending on you to take care of them and make sure their feet are staying um, in good condition and putting booties on when necessary and feeding them and making sure they're well hydrated and all that. And then you're completely depending on them to, you know, not go chasing off after a herd of caribou or not, That's right. know, going, <laughs> not going too close to a hole in the river ice or, you know, things like that. So it's definitely a very, a lot of trust that ha- needs to develop between you and your dogs. Yeah. And so how many dogs are usually at the kennel? Uh, 30 dogs is typically what we always had there, and that's enough for uh, three teams worth. We would generally run anywhere from eight to ten dogs per team. So you know, with pups and stuff, sometimes they're running loose alongside the team um, to get you know some experience with the different conditions and also to you know just build up their endurance and stamina. Mm-hmm. And do all the puppies that are born there, do they all become... The working dogs, or how do you discern if they're if it's a good fit for the puppies, or or do they just automatically instinctually that's their role in life? Yeah, they would. We could keep them all, um, but it depends on the litter size, and we try to always maintain right around thirty dogs. So. It, it depends on kind of how many dogs are retiring in a given year because we usually retire them when they're about nine years old or so. Um, we put them up for adoption, and usually local folks in the community adopt them. These They're so friendly, and these are probably the most friendly sled dogs that you ever met because you know, they're around hundreds and hundreds of people and getting pet all day long. So they, you know, everybody wants to adopt these guys when they do retire. Um, but uh, but we usually keep three, four, sometimes as many as five in a given in a given uh, year, and you know it it depends on kind of what the male female ratio is too. Sometimes we might want some bigger dogs. Sometimes we want more females so that we can potentially have some to breed in the future. So it kind of you know it's a bunch of different factors that play into how many we keep. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I bet the dogs are so socialized because if you're doing three presentations a day to that many people that are visiting the park, then that's an an awesome opportunity for them to be very comfortable, which does, I'm sure, make them desirable that people do want to adopt them. How does somebody go about getting on, filling out adoption papers and trying to get, get one of these dogs? 
oftentimes, I mean, they would contact us, you know, by phone or email, or if they had, they were at the kennels themselves and, you know, found a, saw a particular dog, then they can fill out an adoption form, and then we, you know, do background checks, and it's kind of amazing how, uh, <laughs> it's really quite um, competitive to get one of these dogs, actually. Yeah. As it should be, yeah. yeah right, and um, and we would prefer that they stay in Alaska just because they are so well suited for that climate. You know, we certainly would never place them with a family that lived in a warmer climate. But we have, you know, they have gone to other, you know, northern climates like Montana or the, you know, New England, Maine, a few places like that. So yeah, I um, think but, I was reading about one that went to Minnesota. Yeah, right. Yeah, so do you have a waiting list then for um, that people sign up for? We, yeah, we do. Um, and sometimes, you know, what, what sometimes happens is uh, the park staff will become attached to them. You know, folks that work there that help us walk them in the summer. We have a dog walking program in the summertime so that they can get out in the evenings and get a little exercise when it um, is not so warm for them in the summer. So they... Um, they will often become attached to them and want to adopt them when they retire. And so often they'll be the ones to be first chosen. To, to be in line first, yes. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yep, I, I can surely understand that. Yes, they've already bonded with them, I'm right, sure. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's much easier transition for, for the dog as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, we are going to take just a quick break and hear some important messages from our sponsors. And we're going to come back and keep visiting with Karen Fortier. So please come right back. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. Love your pets but wish their medications were a lot less expensive? They are at 1-800-PET-MEDS. You'll not only save on flea and heartworm medications, but on prescriptions for arthritis, incontinence, thyroid, and more. And you get fast service, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Plus, our licensed pharmacists ensure accuracy, monitor drug interaction, and more. See why over 5 million people have trusted their pet's health to 1-800-PET-MEDS, America's largest pet pharmacy. Call now or order online. Go to PetMeds.com forward slash work, W-O-R-K, to get 10% off any order and free shipping on orders of $39 or more at PetMeds.com. There's a movement afoot, ShoeBuy.com. Join the millions of people who shop ShoeBuy.com's over 400 brands and 500,000 products. Order now and get free shipping and free return shipping. ShoeBuy.com, the world's greatest shoe store. Walk your dog in style and comfort. Enter the code WORKING, W-O-R-K-I-N-G, at checkout and get a 10% discount plus free shipping at ShoeBuy.com. How would you like your business to reach out and invite in our audience? We have a brand new trademark concept called Info Seeds. Info Seeds are short 20-second seeds of information about your place of business, practice, or service is the best, most cost-effective way to invite us in. We only have a limited number of slots left. For more information, visit the website. PetLifeRadio.com Click on Sponsorship Information. There you can listen to a sample of Info Seed. Remember, only a limited number of opportunities Opportunities are available. Hello, I'm Deborah Wolf, and I'm inviting you to my animal party on Pet Life Radio. 
My pet experts will be coming to the party to answer your pet questions. And they'll also be sharing their favorite stories and messages with us. But I'll be asking them some tough questions. We'll get their opinions on the hot-button topics like the pit bull ban, pet food, vaccines, religion, politics, and animals, cat decline, and the latest news. Whatever's turning the animal world on its head, we'll be talking about at the animal party. This party's got bite. Every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Working Like Dogs on Pet Life Radio. And we're visiting today with Karen Fortier, the author of Sled Dogs of Denali National Park. And she's giving us the inside scoop of life at the park and working with these amazing working dogs. And we've been talking about their life at the park. And so tell us, Karen, so they, I'm guessing that they're housed in pens. Yeah, the, um, the, the, the kennel area at Denali um, is a historic kennel structure. Um, some dogs are in pens um, primarily because, you know, we would put females in heat in pens um, to avoid any accidental breedings. And um, some dogs that may be slightly shyer prefer the pens rather than kind of being out in the open um, where, you know, visitors can, you know, touch and, and pet them and stuff. Um, so there's probably 10 dogs or so that are in pens, and then 20 dogs are, are out on houses, um, and we do put ropes up around them in the summertime um, just so that they have they can choose whether they want to be on their house or come over to get pets from folks. Um, but uh, they all have a, a historic log dog house, <laughs> and oh. it's, very, it's very fitting with Alaska. Um, they have a log dog house with a flat roof because um, dogs typically like to get up on their roofs to have... Um, a flat, you know, dry, warm place to, to lay around on. Mm-hmm. Um, so so they, they, they have kind of a plywood roof to their house so they get up there, and then they have, you know, sort of their own little area to, to be in. Oh, that's so cute. <laughs> and, and how often are they fed? Are they fed twice a day or once a day? Once a day in the summer, they have a big water bowl that's available to them all, uh, you know, throughout the day. And then in the evening, around you know four o'clock in the afternoon, they get fed in the in the summer. And then in the winter, um, we feed them twice a day. Their their food is definitely increased during the winter time because of all the extra calorie consumption. So they're fed in the morning mostly with a brothy meal, so that their food is mixed with quite a bit of water, so that they stay well hydrated. Um, they you know they don't have any free access to water really in the winter because their, their water bowls would freeze solid so they um, <laughs> we make sure we bait their, their food with a lot of water and then in, they also in addition to their two meals a day they get fat snacks so kind of as a extra calorie snack they get you know poultry fat or beef fat globs that is kind of frozen in these buckets and we just give them a, a, a ball of that as a snack <laughs> Oh, yummy. <laughs> I'm sure to them it's very yummy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they love it. <laughs> yeah. Do you give and them then, other supplements? We do. Um, there's different supplements that you can provide. There's some, a, a lot of mushers who race will, you know, feed different meat and fish supplements because we can't store those at the backcountry cabins um, because we stock those in the fall and, you know, that stuff would rot by the time we got out there. Um, right. Because it wouldn't be frozen in the fall part of the year. 
we 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 strictly feed a very high grade um, food that's it's probably about three times as high in protein and fats than sort of your typical um, grocery store brands of dog foods. Yeah, yeah. Well, they need. I'm sure they need all they can get yeah. to be in that environment. They're probably well, getting about three to five thousand calories a day. Wow, wow. Well, and so how many staff did you have working with you? Were they paid staff? Were they volunteers? It's definitely a mix, but Denali really depends a lot on um, volunteer staff. We've never, you know, had enough staff to really support the entire kennels operation. So, you know, all of the dog walkers in the summer, we had anywhere from 30 to 60 dog walkers. There'd be one to two people per dog. Um, they were all volunteers. Um, in the summer, it would be myself um, and usually two paid staff and then two student conservation interns. So the SCA is a big supporter of our, our the organization, at, you know, at most national parks, but we've always had uh, paid interns at the kennels in the summer. And then in the winter months, it was myself and then two volunteers who helped to run all the patrols. They were provided, you know, free housing and, and food uh, on the trail and everything. But they would volunteer basically for an eight-month season <laughs> just because of the to get the experience and to live that kind of amazing life for a winter. Yeah. Yeah, and how do people get those volunteer opportunities? How can you apply for that? Well, anybody could apply. Um, they, we would usually announce the position in the spring or early summer, and oftentimes it would be park staff, like seasonal um, park rangers that you know wanted to stay on in the winter. Maybe they were helping out with the summer um, sled dog demonstrations, and maybe they wanted to stay um, to see what it was like to run the dogs in the wintertime. Sometimes they might be like backcountry staff or other um, seasonal folks that just you know wanted to get that experience. Yeah, I was wondering about that and wondering about when the public gets to interact um, with the dogs, how much interaction do they really get? Can they help with any of walking the dogs, the visitors that come, or is it more they have to be the more of the the consistent trained volunteers? Yeah, we, for the dog walking, we really try to have that only be folks that can sign up for the entire summer and yeah. establish that relationship. Kind of, we take them through, you know, sort of a, a little a mini training um, regime when they, when they sign up to be a dog walker. And it's, you know, anything from how to handle your dog if you were to run into a moose. You know, they are on a leash when you're walking them, but still, you know, there's wildlife all along the park road when you're taking them for walks, and you could see wolves, you could see caribou, moose, uh, porcupines, which could be interesting, and so you really <laughs> need to know how to handle your, your dog well, and so there's just kind of a, just different rules that um, people need to know, and it, you really need that trust and a you know, relationship that develops between you and your dog, so we like to yeah. not have it change hands, you know, that often, but when visitors come... Um, Oftentimes, you know, if they come at feeding time, they, they can help us feed the dogs. Um, they, they can actually, you know, go up and, and pet and scratch and kind of <laughs> play around with the dogs when they're, when they're there. So you're, it's really, you know, it, they're, they are the friendliest sled dogs anywhere. Yeah. And, and a, it, that's kind of my unbiased opinion, but it's, uh, 
it's it's really quite true. I mean, I think that's what one thing that strikes the visitor most when they see these dogs is, I had no idea they were going to be this friendly. I mean, they'll yeah. roll over on their backs and get their belly oh. scratched all day long. And, they're you know, working they're really, the crowd. Yeah, yeah. They, do. they have it down. <laughs> oh, that's so great. Yeah. Well, tell us about your book, Sled Dogs of Denali National Park. How did you decide to write that from a park ranger to an author? <laughs> well, um, when I first was hired on, um, there was a, a publication that was um, written by the original kennel manager. Her name was Sandy Kogel, and um, she actually just passed away recently. She was an incredible woman. Um, but she um, wrote the kind of the first, it was called The Sled Dogs of Denali. And it was... Um, it had no color photos, and it was a, a very small, you know, maybe 10-page um, kind of a write-up about the dogs, more of like a, a pamphlet-type book. And um, there was some interest by the Alaska Natural History Association, who runs the bookstore at Denali, to kind of expand on that um, and have, you know, much more photos. And they had hired, um, the previous winter from when I started, they had hired a professional photographer to go out on some patrols and take some um some photos. His name was Kenan Ward. And so the kind of the idea had gotten started a little bit. So when I was hired, um, they approached me and asked if you know, I'd be interested in writing the book. And so after about a year of working there, I started in on writing it. And I had some great editors and <laughs> my, uh, I think, a, a fairly decent first attempt at a book. Yeah, well, another great task in your job description. <laughs> I mean, what a wonderful opportunity for you. Yeah, it was. It was really a great opportunity, and I kind of did it as part of the, my job. Um, so, you know, I'm obviously not collecting any royalties on it or anything like that. So it was, you know, as, you know, part of my duties. So, yeah, it was a really neat thing to be able to focus on that as well. So I, I definitely was busy those first few years. Yeah, well, that's definitely another big piece of the history of the dogs in the park. I think you really contributed to that with the book, which is really awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I'm glad that they have that. Um, there's a video as well that was made um, with a, a former kennel manager as well, so a lot of folks can, you know, purchase that and kind of see, you know, firsthand what that's like. And and they did a, an incredible job with a, a new video that's shown at the visitor center at Denali, and it has quite a bit of dog footage as well. Um, so it kind of gives folks a, a good idea of what actually happens in the winter months. Yeah, and how can someone order the book? They can go through the, uh, well, actually, it's not Alaska Natural History Association. It's now the Alaska Geographic. So if you, um, no, I think it's alaskageographic.org. Um, okay. You can order the books through there, and I think they can actually even order them on Amazon.com or other booksellers. Okay. Well, we'll definitely have that information up on our website for our listeners because it is a beautiful book, and I'm looking forward to getting a copy of it myself. Oh, it it looks, yeah, it looks wonderful. And so I have to ask you, Karen, if someone's planning a trip to the park, what's a good time of year to go, and how would you recommend that they do that? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what they're looking for. If they really want to go and and get out into the park and maybe you know, do a little backpacking or get out and, you know, take a bus trip and see the wildlife. And certainly I would say June is one of the prettiest months. And also in August when the, when the leaves are really turning, um, probably by mid-August is when fall is in Denali. And mm -hmm. instead of, you know, deciduous trees that have, you know, 
beautiful colored leaves like the East Coast and other parts of, of the U.S. Um, Denali has the carpets of tundra that turn different colors, you know, and so it's just, it's really magnificent. You know, you get just all those different colors, reds, oranges, yellows, but it's a carpet on the floor of the tundra. So it's, that's, a, wow. I think, one of my favorite times of the year there. Wow. Uh, you know, if you come in June, you, you're there for the 24 hours of daylight, pretty much. So it's, uh, that's a whole other experience, too. And how is it with lodging there? Is it usually really crowded those times or those peak times? And how would somebody get lodging? Yeah, it can be. There's, um, there's quite a bit of lodging right in the entrance area of the park. Um, a lot of the folks who come are on package tours. Um, they come, you know, say by a cruise up to, you know, to the, through the inside passage, and then they might, you know, take a bus trip up to Denali and stay a night and then come back. So there's not a ton of independent travelers. Um, another big way to get there is by railroad from um, Anchorage. That's how a lot of visitors arrive today. But um, it, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. There's a, there's a lot of local bed and breakfasts in the area as well. Healy and, and Denali Park have uh, quite a few, you know, sort of mom-and-pop businesses rather than sort of the larger, um, you know, princess and other larger tour companies. So mm-hmm. it sort of depends on what, you know, people's flavor is. And what would you recommend for um, visitors with disabilities? Like for myself, if I came with Whistle, my service dog, would there be anything that I'd need to be aware of when visiting the park? I know you mentioned a lot of wildlife, but are are there any other guides that you would have for people with disabilities with an assistance dog? I believe that there is a publication for ADA, and there's there's definitely... Denali has done a really good job with all their new uh, visitor center facilities and, and, you know, the kind of the campus area, what they call it, with some of the different facilities are all ADA accessible. So I I know that the park does have a publication, and I think if you go on the park's website, they also have a section on there for um, visitors, you know, visiting with disabilities. So there there definitely are good accommodations, and the buses that do go out in the park, there are wheelchair-accessible buses that um, travel out there. So it's, you know, it's definitely not a place that some folks with disabilities could get out in the backcountry very easily, but there are... um, definitely facilities in the front country areas that uh, make it, you know, comfortable for folks. Yeah, so you definitely get to have the experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. We went to Yellowstone last year and were able to spend a week, and it was just such a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that my husband and I have on our bucket list is to get to as many of the national parks as we Mm -hmm. can. So we definitely, Denali is up at the top of that list of getting to because it just looks yeah. like such a such a tremendous unique place that it has is. so much to offer. It yeah, is. just a, such a huge expanse of you know intact wilderness. It's just there's not many places like that left in the world. Yeah, I know. And then to see the working dogs there, I mean, that's just such an added bonus. <laughs> and there are some visitors that come there specifically for that because they, you know, what I would always ask, you know, if I gave a sled dog demonstration is how many of you knew about the dogs before you came to Denali? And I would say the majority didn't, but there were always 10 or 15 folks that would raise their hands and would, you know, say, tell me later that the reason they came to Denali was they wanted to, to meet our sled dogs. Yeah, well, hopefully my husband and I will be raising our hands at the next presentation. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> yeah, because it, it definitely seems like a wonderful place that everybody should try and get to. 
Yep, it sure is. Yeah, well, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been such a pleasure visiting with you and learning about the dogs and the park. And we hope that our listeners will get online and get a copy of the book. And again, that website is alaskageographic.org. And thank you, our listeners, so much for being with us today. And if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear those from you. And so, Karen, if our listeners have any questions for you, is there some place they can reach you by email or telephone? Yeah, sure. Um, by email, I can uh, give you that is my first and last name and then the number 68 at Gmail. Okay, great. Great. And we will put that on our website for our listeners, so in case anybody wants to get in touch with Karen directly. And Karen, thank you so much for being with us and for sharing all your experiences and your beautiful book with us. Thank you very much for having me. And please come back and join us again here at Pet Life Radio. And we really appreciate you being with us. And if you have any questions or comments for me and Whistle, you can reach us at Marcy, M-A-R-C-I-E, at PetLifeRadio.com. So thanks so much, and we look forward to joining you again soon. Take good care. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.